When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hello, everybody, and welcome to something new that I'm trying as I do different formats this year and try to figure out exactly how I'm going to structure things here on the channel. This is kind of a weekly roundup, so it's sort of a hybrid between a regular movie review and what I was doing on the live show, which is really hard for me to get consistently because of screenings, etc. So this is going to kind of cover several different topics. Today, we're going to talk about The King's Daughter, which is an almost indescribable new film that is hitting theaters with a really interesting story behind it. I'm going to review that movie. I'm going to review a movie that I saw last week that I saw a lot of people talking about, which is the anime film Bell. Another very interesting movie for for a completely different reason. I also want to do a spoiler review for Scream. I did my regular review for Scream last week. There were some things that I couldn't really say in that review because it would be going into big spoiler territory, even talking about specific characters. So I'm going to do a rundown of that, and then I'm going to wrap things up with a preview of the Sundance Film Festival, which actually started yesterday. I've watched two movies so far. And I want to give you a rundown of some of the bigger titles that I'm looking forward to. But the fun is going to be finding those little small movies. And I have about 20 lined up in the next few days to watch. I'll be doing a wrap-up for Sundance at the end. But I wanted to kind of give a preview of some of the bigger ones that I'll be looking at over the next few days. Before I get to The King's Daughter, just a reminder that if you like what you're watching here on YouTube and you want to maybe take it with you as a podcast, you can find all of the links to my audio channel down in the description below. It's on Spotify, Apple, Audible, Stitcher, wherever you like to do your podcast, you can find me on there. So you can take the show on the go if you don't want to keep that YouTube app open on your phone. Let's kick things off by looking at one of the two movies, I think, that's hitting major wide release this weekend, although I don't think it's going to make a lot of money, and that is The King's Daughter. And while The King's Daughter is an incredibly weird movie, the story behind it competes with it for just complete Hollywood insanity. This movie was filmed back in 2014 for a reported $40 million with a Chinese company putting up half the budget. It was originally titled The Moon and the Sun after the book that it's based on, and it was scheduled to come out in April 2015, a week after the release of Furious 7 and three weeks before Avengers Age of Ultron. So think about how much has passed. We've had two uh, Fast and Furious movies since this movie was supposed to come out. We've gone through two full phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just about, and this movie is just now coming out. That's the climate in which this movie was made. Why it's actually getting a theatrical release at this point, I have no idea. I don't know why you would actually put this movie in theaters. They probably could have sold it to a streamer at any point, even in the last year or two, and made more money than this thing is actually going to make theatrically. Perhaps it was a con thing, but this is also the kind of movie that is almost worth recommending ironically, but I never do that kind of thing because it it's unique. I'll give it that. The King's Daughter stars Pierce Brosnan as King Louis XIV. Seeking immortality, King Louis XIV commands a sailor, played by Benjamin Walker, to capture a mermaid under orders from his personal physician, who's played by Pablo Schreiber. The plan is to sacrifice the mermaid during a solar eclipse in order to extract its heart, a plot that, due to the delay in this movie's release, was sadly preempted by 2016's Suicide Squad. You got a movie in 
We gotta cut her heart out! Cutting out the mermaid's heart, and I can't believe that I just said that, will grant Louis XIV immortality and allow him to rule France forever. And it should be noted that all of this is established and most of it happens on screen in the first five minutes of the movie. Partially because at some point during this years-long post-production process, Julie Andrews, no less than the screen legend Mary Poppins herself, was added as the narrator of this film. At the same time, Louis decides to bring his illegitimate daughter Marie from an abbey where she's grown up since she was a child to court in Versailles in order to become his new composer because you see she's also a musical prodigy and also she doesn't know she's the king's daughter. Of course as happens in movies Abby strikes up a friendship with the mermaid they start chatting they figure out that something's afoot uh, and then uh, adventure unfolds. One of the weirdest things about this movie and there's several of them is just how prestigious the production of this thing is. Like I said, it was made on a budget of about $40 million. They shot a lot of it on the grounds of actual Versailles in France, which is one of the most beautiful palaces uh, on the planet Earth. And then when you see this movie shot there, it would be like if they shot 80% of Transformers the last night in Buckingham Palace. Something just doesn't quite fit. And it's not just the location, it's great production design, it's great costuming, there's so much that makes this movie look like a big budget film and feel like a big budget film, except for the story, which is complete nonsense. Part of it is the story itself, but the other part is that even though this movie has four credited editors and it finished production in spring slash summer of 2014, so almost eight years ago, it is still a narrative mess. It jumps from scene to scene, none of them are really connected. There's a bunch of scenes that I don't even know why they're in the movie because they just underscore things that already happened in the film. You'd think with close to a decade worth of post-production time, you could at least assemble a coherent narrative, but the king's daughter is not able to do that. I do have to give credit to Pierce Brosnan, who gives one of the hammiest performances in movie history. I think that he must have known what this movie was going to be because it somehow fits the finished product, although I don't know how he could know that when he was shooting. This Louis XIV is all posturing and proclamations, many shots of Pierce Brosnan dramatically brushing hair out of his eyes. He, he really makes this an enjoyable experience. If that role had been played straight, this movie would have been deadly boring. Kaya Scodelario plays Louis' daughter. She starred in an entire Maze Runner series since this movie was supposed to come out. She has another movie in theaters right now, so you could go probably to a theater, might be a second-run theater, give this movie a week or two, and you could go see The King's Daughter and then immediately go see Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City and see the same actress age seven years between movies. Kaya Scodelario does as well as she can with the role of a hidden French princess who's also a master cellist who can talk to mermaids. But there's really only so much that you can do. The mermaid, by the way, is played by Chinese superstar Fan Bingbing. Uh, she does not have a single line of English or even spoken on-screen dialogue. The King's Daughter is also backed by a supporting cast, including Oscar winner William Hurt, who brings the true weight and gravitas of a storied career to the line, My reasons may be different from yours, but the mermaid must escape the king. I don't really know who this movie was intended for. The fact that it has this almost eight-year delay adds a big curiosity factor to it that may draw more interest than it would have if it had just come out normally. If it had come out in 2015 like it was supposed to, I don't think it would have done well, and it would have just been a, a misfire. The delay adds a sort of mystique to it that I don't think it would have had otherwise, but it doesn't make the movie any better. Although I will say that it skirts that line of being so bad that it's good in the sense that 
that I wouldn't tell you to go see it, certainly, but I would say that if you do go see it, you might have a good time because the camp factor is there. It's not quite that good, but if you're on an airplane or if you're, I don't know, stuck in the lobby of a veterinarian's office or something and the king's daughter happens to be on and you don't have any other choice but to watch it, uh, I think you're going to enjoy yourself. Kids may enjoy it, but keep in mind, it is also about cutting a mermaid's heart out, so it could be a little disturbing for the younger ones. Either way, was the king's daughter worth the wait? I guess probably not, but at the same time, it wouldn't have been worth it if we didn't have to wait anyway. Definitely one of the most unique movies of the year, though. The mermaid must escape the king. We're the only ones who can stop him. Let's move on to another really unique movie, but in a much better sense, and that is the anime film Bell, which is technically a 2021 release. It was put out last summer in Japan. It played several festivals in 2021, including the Cannes Film Festival. It is eligible for the Academy Awards, and I would not be surprised if you see this as one of the five nominees for the animated feature film Oscar when the nominations are announced later this year. Bell is from Studio Chizu and writer-director Mamoru Hosada, whose previous films include Mirai, which was also nominated for an Academy Award, and The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. And it is partially a retelling of Beauty and the Beast, but there's a lot more to it than that. The film takes place in a fully virtual world called You, which has brought everybody on Earth together. Using biological data, You brings the user's inner essence to life, exposing a person's real self through their virtual avatar. The main character, Suzu, is a young girl still mourning the loss of her mother and who finds an out outlet for her grief and her musical talent through her you avatar who she names Belle. Soon Belle is the most famous avatar in the world and a global music superstar but another avatar called the dragon is wreaking havoc on you and Suzu sees someone in this virtual world who appears to be suffering as much as she is in real life. Suzu sets out to find the identity of the dragon before he can be exposed to the world while trying to keep her own identity a secret scared of the fame and scrutiny that being exposed as Belle would bring. Now, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm still somewhat new to the anime world. I've, I've come a little bit of a way since I started the channel almost two years ago, but I'm by no means experienced. So a lot of these things, a lot of this animation style and these worlds are new to me. However, I think whether you are an anime new fan or an anime expert, you really have to be impressed by the craft and the style of this film. The animation style is stunning. It combines a virtual environment, computer-generated animation with the more familiar 2D animation style. And it's just a really vivid, brilliant, colorful world. It does remind me of Ready Player One in the sense that both of these films, although one was in the, I'll say live action, but more computer animation medium. This is more toward the traditional side of animation, at least as far as it's being presented. But they're both able to create a world that's rooted in the real, but more so in the fantastical. And you see the appeal of basically living for many people your life in this virtual world. The movie is being shown here in the U.S. in two different versions. There is a subtitled version in Japanese, and then there's a dubbed version in English, which includes exclusive English language versions of the many different songs that are featured in the film. I've been lectured on this many times, but when I'm watching an anime movie for the first time, the first time, I usually prefer to watch it dubbed because I want to really enjoy the visuals 
first and foremost, and that's whether it's a theatrical movie like this one or whether I'm watching a Studio Ghibli movie at home. But because of scheduling on this movie, the screening that I was able to go to was the original subtitled version. And so, especially in the beginning of the film, I was kind of having to move my eyes up and down because there was a lot of expository information, but I also wanted to drink in this beautiful world. I like to double back and see it in English just so I can sit back and just look at the visuals. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where I know that there are hardcore people on either side and generally a little more toward people that don't like the dubbed version. I can't speak for how this movie is dubbed in English. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Uh, but I will say that it is a stunning uh, film in Japanese, uh, as it would be visually, I think, in English. And the music as well. There are translations for the lyrics on the bottom. You don't lose any of that meaning. And they're catchy songs. I haven't heard the English language versions, but they're catchy songs in Japanese. If you're new to anime, then the melodrama of this movie may take you a little bit by surprise. It certainly took some adjustment periods for me, but I've kind of gotten used to that. The fact that a lot of the emotions and everything are heightened in most anime films, but there is a real undercurrent here of actual human emotion beyond the sort of broader things, which are often played for comedic effect or for extreme sentimentality. And you see here the idea of connection through the virtual world. And these aren't new themes, but it is very character-based, and there are uh, explorations of Suzu's grief. There's kind of a mystery as to who this dragon slash the beast is, and the reveal there again shows uh, how we express ourselves inside doesn't always match the reality of the person outside, yet at the same time, uh, people are more real in a certain sense inside you than they are in the real world because this program is bringing out their real selves. It's a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting dichotomy between these two characters, how they interact with each other. Uh, and there is also some broad comedy, but some funny comedy. A lot of it's centered on the different characters. I really enjoyed this movie a lot as I continue my journey into anime. I'm definitely going to check out uh, more films from this director. So I'm slowly continuing. I'd say my toes dipped in. I might be ankle deep in the anime world at this point. Once I really get into Demon Slayer Season 2, maybe I'll be, you know, up to my mid-shin. But I'm really enjoying what I'm seeing so far, and I I think if you're an anime fan particularly then you're really going to enjoy this film odds are a lot of anime fans probably went to see it because it's got a pretty wide release last weekend it's still in a lot of theaters nationwide and i'm sure it'll be available on home release pretty soon and like i said don't be surprised if you also see it as a nominee for the best animated film oscar at the academy awards but it's a big recommendation for me for bell just a beautiful film a real great use of animation as a medium and i love how we are continuing to evolve the art and the style of animation to bring stunning stories like this to life. Before we move on, I wanted to take a moment and thank the sponsor of today's show, Athletic Greens, and it was really great timing that they jumped on as a sponsor here on the channel. You've probably heard me uh, promoting them in other episodes, charts, etc. cetera, uh, but it's not just a product that I'm promoting on the show. It's one that I use every day, and it's one that I was actually looking for. I was looking for something in this area because uh, I am focusing on my health this year, uh, both physical health, internal, external, exercising, you name it, and Athletic Greens is something that I started taking because one of the things that it focuses on so much is gut health. That's a, an internal issue that I need to really put focus on. I found that out last year. And there's so many supplements out there, it's hard to piece through which ones have the stuff in it that you need and which ones also taste good. I mean, I need something that actually tastes good. I, I can't just, you know, chug something down if I don't like it. Luckily, Athletic Greens approached me. I gave it a try. And it's something that I actually enjoy taking in the mornings. If I'm in a hurry, I can just put it in a glass of water. If I'm not, I can throw it into a smoothie with 
with a banana and some fruit. Uh, and it's just like drinking any other breakfast smoothie I ever would have had. It's giving me so much that my body actually needs. And Athletic Greens is focused on finding that formula. The probiotics and the gut health stuff are important for me, but it can also help with sleep and energy and so many things that vitamins and the things that are in Athletic Greens help your body do. Things that a lot of us don't get a whole lot of, especially in these winter months as we're all indoors or maybe a little less physical than we normally would be. Athletic Greens is a great way to start your day. It's a way that I'm starting every single day uh, for the past two or three weeks now. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, perfect for the winter months, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Dan. Again, that is athleticgreens.com Dan, D-A-N to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And I want to thank Athletic Greens for sponsoring the show. Bell opened in theaters nationwide last weekend, and so did another movie that I did a non-spoiler review for, which is Scream, the requel, as the movie dubbed it, of the 1996 original. It continues the franchise, and I wanted to get into some spoiler talk because there was a lot of stuff that I didn't get to say last week, even going into mentioning specific actors because I didn't want to give away how much they were or were not in the movie. So let this be your one-time spoiler warning. I am going to go into some spoilers about Scream if you don't want to know skip ahead there should be some timestamps down in the description to my Sundance preview uh, because I wanted to go through Scream a little bit in a spoiler sense for those that saw the movie and it really starts with the opening sequence and I will say I, I talked about in my non-spoiler review that I wasn't a huge fan of the opening sequence I saw it again uh, in, uh, in a better theater. The sound was better. It was a little more immersive. I liked it just a little bit more. And the character of Tara is the only opening girl that we see survive into the film. And I didn't really give enough props as I should have to Jenna Ortega because I didn't want to give away the fact that she was in the movie past the opening scene because it was something that surprised me. But she was really, really strong in this film. You know, there are so many different things going on. So many TV shows and streaming movies, etc. that a lot of times I'll say that I'm surprised by somebody and then somebody will say like well I'm not because I saw her in this or didn't you see her in this and, and the answer is no just because there's so much out there so I haven't seen you or Jane the Virgin or the uh, second babysitter movie that's on Netflix so I didn't really know Jenna Ortega much at all but she is an actress who I will be looking out for from now on her next big project is playing Wednesday Adams in Netflix's live action Tim Burton movie. She really pulled the opening scene off well. She gets the meta dialogue. There's a little early nod to Wes Craven. She mentions that Sidney Prescott lived on Elm Street. This is the movie that was very uh, forward-facing with its love for Wes Craven, including a character named Wes who they kill off and then hold a party in his honor so they can say for Wes. Those are the words that come up. This is, of course, the first screen movie not to be directed by Wes Craven. And I liked that the movie wasn't trying to hide that love and reverence for the director inside the movie itself. Something else that I thought was interesting is that the movie also spoils itself because the first two people that it names as the killers are actually the killers. First, we see this text conversation between Tara and her friend Amber, who is played by Mikey Madison, and it's said that this is a cloned cell phone. So Amber is calling Tara, but it's Ghostface's voice saying that he cloned Amber's cell phone. And it's not, it's actually just Amber calling and texting Sarah. But we are so trained as fans of the franchise to know about cloned cell phones and that it's never who you think it is. That it's always somebody else that we discard what the easy answer would be, which is that, Oh, it's Amber. She's just actually calling from her phone and lying. And we make a much more complicated plot around it. Although there was something that I kind of tagged 
described the first time I watched it and really looked out for and confirmed the second time, which is that when Ghostface sends Tara this streaming video of Amber saying that he's going to kill her, uh, it's actually a video. Like, you can look on the phone, on the text, and it's a video file, which means it's a pre-taped file, not a live stream, which is an early indicator that all is not as it seems, that Amber had this pre-taped, probably Richie pre-taped it at some point, and that uh, you should have been much more suspicious of her from the very beginning. One question that I had that started in this scene was never actually answered. I was thinking they might go for some big reveal was, who is the girl's mother? Because she's discussed in the opening scene. It's mentioned that she's an AA and NA. She went to high school with Billy Loomis. Obviously, he had a daughter with her uh, and then died in the first movie. It's not revealed in this movie. I thought that they were going to try to maybe pull a rabbit out of the hat, but there are no real prime suspects. We don't really get to know many of the other students at Woodsboro in the first film. There's the cheerleader who Mara suggested who came out of the bathroom and put her finger in her mouth without washing her hands, which is pretty gross, but she didn't really seem like somebody who was hopelessly in love with Billy. So that is a question going forward, although I'll give my thoughts on going forward uh, in just a moment, but it's kind of one of those thinkers that's like, well, I wonder what it is, or I wonder who it is, because they intentionally leave that blank. One thing I did notice is that Ghostface is much more brutal in this film, starting with that opening attack, snapping Tara's leg, stabbing her through the hand. It's a, it's a kind of uh, brutality that we haven't seen from any of the previous Ghostface killers, no pun intended, uh, in the past, and I think that it, it may be twofold. Number one, uh, you can get away with more now, uh, just ratings-wise than you could back in the late 90s going into the 2000s. But I also wonder if Richie and Amber were intentionally being more brutal in their kills because they wanted to inspire, as they say, a really good horror film, a really good reboot of the Stab franchise. Maybe this was an intentional statement that the movie was trying to make, maybe not, but it was another thing that I kind of tagged as, you know, maybe something clever that the movie was doing. After the opening sequence, we meet Sam and Richie. Sam, played by Melissa Barrera, who I think is a, a great lead. I really enjoyed her in this lead role. And then Richie, played by Jack Quaid. I didn't really discuss him either. Um, and he has a tricky role because he's playing the love interest of the main character, which is always suspect number one, as we learn later. And so you have to go in knowing that people are going to be scrutinizing you and analyzing you as to whether you are one of the killers. I thought that Jack Quaid played it really well, but there are times where once you're going back and in, in, in retrospect, uh, kind of watching it again, that you think he might have let it slip a little bit. Uh, for example, when they're driving to Woodsboro and uh, Sam is sort of discussing all the different things and, and Richie keeps saying that it's like Halloween. Again, this, I think, may have been a subtle clue in that, you know, Richie's not really supposed to be too much into horror movies, and yet he seems pretty versed on Halloween, Halloween being the movie that originally inspired Randy's rules to surviving a horror movie in the first Stab slash Scream movie. So I think that could be a subtle clue that Rich, Richie is actually not quite as dumb about horror movies as you might think. One thing I didn't really like about the movie was its most useless character, who is played by Kyle Gallner. He's in for like two scenes, I think, and is immediately killed. And he's not really in the movie for any reason other than to sort of help to establish the fact that everyone who's being killed, at least in the beginning, is directly related to the original killers uh, from the first film. But also, I, I guess, just to 
kind of up the body count. I thought that his kill scene was pretty good. I liked the brutality and again the effectiveness of just a quick stab to the neck from Ghostface. Um, again, showing that this is a much more brutal version of the killer than we've seen before. Uh, but he really didn't serve any narrative purpose in the movie whatsoever. And I, I know a lot of people would say like, well, yeah, well, that's every horror movie. But Scream kind of prides itself on elevating itself above these horror movie cliches. This is where I thought it kind of leaned into one of those for the sake of just having another death. Shortly afterwards, we get the first appearance of Ghost Billy Loomis, who haunts Sam's mind. And first of all, uh, kudos to both Skeet Ulrich for holding up incredibly well over the years and the digital de-aging team. This is a pretty low-budget movie, but I thought the work on Billy was pretty good. I think the fact that he is a ghost means you can wash him out a little bit more and, and hide the de-aging work that was done. This also takes place in the hospital, and it's a scene where Ghostface is again calling, this time Sam, from Amber's phone. We find out that this is actually Amber yet again so the movie is telling us who the killer is and there's a scene afterwards in the hospital room where Richie is talking to the group of friends and suggests to Amber well maybe you're the killer and if you look there's a really great subtle look that Mikey Madison gives a Jack Quaid in that scene which is almost kind of like a shut up look like he was kind of overplaying his hand it's something that plays one way the first time you see it and another way the second time which is what I love about movies like this when they can pull it off we're reintroduced to Dewey in the next scene when Richie and Sam go to him for advice. We see Tatum's ashes in his trailer. This is the second time where the movie directly tells us who the killer is. Dewey says, rule number one, don't trust the love interest. And so the movie essentially now has outed both killers and directly said, these are the killers. They showed us Amber uh, calling in the opening scene. We now have Dewey saying, it's him, and pointing to Richie. And again, this is sort of turning the thing that we expect from Scream on its head. We expect these movies to take the obvious suspects and tell us why they're not the killers, and instead we have the movie basically telling us who the killers are and then expecting us to eliminate them because of what we've seen from previous movies. It's a smart way to use the formula against us as the audience to try to make this a satisfying ending because they know that we're going to be picking this movie apart to try to figure out who's behind everything. Dewey calls Sydney afterwards, and there's one quick throwaway line where he asks her how Mark is. Now, assuming there's not a different Mark in the picture, that means that Sydney ended up getting together and having kids with Detective Mark Kincaid from Scream 3. That's Patrick Dempsey's character. And it was great to see her living a more settled and confident life, even down to the fact that she's not running from Ghostface in this movie. She is hunting Ghostface. She comes to Woodsboro and she says... I'm not going to let this killer or killers come after my family. I'm not leaving here until Ghostface is in the ground. And Sidney Prescott, when you look at the evolutions, and I watched all of the screen movies leading up to this one in a very compressed period of time over on Patreon, she is one of the best, if not the best, main protagonists in a horror franchise. First of all, she survived all the movies, which is great. But there's actual character progression. You see her uh, as the, the high school girl in the beginning. You see her sort of retreat into herself, into her shell. You see how she loses faith in people. And here we see her kind of at the end of this journey where she is out in the open, living a life out in the open. She's not by herself, uh, isolated on this ranch anymore. And she's now seeking out that which she was running from. I love the progression of Sydney's uh, character in these movies. I know there probably wasn't as much of Sydney as a lot of people thought there would be, but I really, really liked Nev Campbell's performance in this film. I also really enjoyed the scene that was held in the Randy Meeks Memorial Screening Room. I complimented Jasmine Savoy Brown in my regular review. She's another actress I'm anxious to 
see more of. She's in the show Yellow Jackets, which I've heard a lot about. I think I'm going to try to watch that very soon. Giving the rules for survival is a tough one to do. Uh, It's been done by Jamie Kennedy in three different movies. It's basically exposition, but I thought she handled that scene well. It was good to see Heather Matarazzo briefly back as Randy's sister. Um, Just a lot of little fun nods to the fans. They don't derail the movie, and you're not going to not understand what's going on. But for those who know these small characters and nods to the previous films in the franchise, they just help to add some spice to the experience. This scene also had my favorite line of the movie when Wes talks about Dewey crawling into a bottle when he says, well, I guess you might be the killer because that cut deep. And that line was sold so well from David Arquette. He really knows how to play this character well. And I'm sad that we're not going to see it seems like any more of him playing Dewey. This scene also establishes the eventual motivation of our killers, which is that Stab 8 was deemed to be a completely ruinous movie for the franchise, including a lot of accusations that I've heard thrown at uh, another franchise in particular about uh, messages being forced into them. Uh, A Mary Sue. I love the idea when Dewey asks what a Mary Sue is and Wes says, you don't want to know. I agree with Wes in this situation. But it's setting up the idea that the Stab franchise is in the gutter and it's because because of bad fan reaction, this needs to be established because that's crucial to the killer's motivation at the end, but it's dropped in such a way that it doesn't seem obvious. We also have what reads as a bit of dramatic irony here on rewatch because Wes starts to worry that he might be next in line to be killed because he's the son of a character that was in one of the sequels and he's told nobody cares about the shitty sequels, Wes, you're safe. Of course, Wes and his mother, Sheriff Judy, are the next two that are killed. So the, the movie is telling us here's who the killers are. The movie is telling us that these are not going to be the next victims and they are the next victims. There are a lot of things that the movie's outright telling you are going to happen that you don't believe will happen because you think they're going to subvert the expectation when in fact they lean into it and then vice versa. I also talked about the brutality of the kills in this movie. Wes's murder in particular with the very close up shot of the knife going through the neck and we see it underneath. I think that was a really well done prosthetic that was done practically. If not, it was some pretty clean digital work because it involves liquid and it was very close to the camera, but I'm pretty sure that was prosthetic. And again, this is more brutal almost, even though it was just one wound, than any kill that we've seen in any of the other Scream movies. And it helps to set this apart. And I think it underscores the idea of a new generation, people coming in to reinvent this franchise. Shortly afterwards, we get a cameo from the YouTube channel Dead Meat. Always great to see fellow YouTubers in an actual movie. Uh, And then in the little thumbnail down there on the recommended videos, there was confirmation that Hayden Panettiere's character from Scream 4, Kirby, survived. And a lot of people saying, we want to see Kirby in a future Scream movie. And I'll just come flat out and and say it. I know that there has been some talk from Kevin Williamson that if this movie is successful, which it appears like it's going to be, that there's a new trilogy planned. I actually hope they don't do it. I love the Scream movies. I really do. Some more than others. I think three is kind of the low point and four was a little better than three as I've gone through my rewatch. I think that this one was actually, in my opinion, a a substantial step up from four, but I don't want to see this devolve into just another horror franchise because as I mentioned before, that's what's always set it apart is it's self-aware about those kinds of things and it tries to subvert what you would expect and not become just another slasher franchise. I think it's come dangerously close to that in the past and I think if you're going to take this and make two more movies out of it I don't really know what real estate you have there to do that if they do make these movies I'm going to be rooting for them I hope they're great but but just sitting here and seeing this film I 
think you could easily end the franchise here, not go any further, and have a really satisfying five-film arc for a lot of these characters. As the murders escalate, Gail, of course, shows up, and I love the scene between her and Dewey slash David Arquette because Courtney Cox and David Arquette's relationship has often mirrored that of their characters, uh, Gail and Dewey. They met on Scream and started falling in love there. They got married. They're now separated. And it was kind of a heartbreaking discussion between them where we find out that the reason that they split up was because Dewey went with Gail to New York and it just wasn't for him. And they exchanged that dialogue where Gail says, you were meant to be in Woodsboro. And Dewey says, and you weren't. And it's just this this acknowledgement between these two that they just weren't meant to be with each other. You can tell they love each other very much, but they can't be together. And a lot of people might be frustrated by the fact that they were split up. I think the believability of that scene and that those performances really sell that plot point for me. Sadly, this reunion is short-lived because Dewey finally, after many failed attempts from previous ghost faces, falls victim to the murderer. And I knew that the guy was a goner as soon as he went back to go take care of the headshot. You never go back to the killer. I thought it was interesting. I liked the idea of the killer saying it's an honor because we have here an Amber who's the killer that's doing uh, this murder. We know where Richie is. Uh, somebody who's a huge fan of the Stab franchise and knows that to be the person to actually take out Dewey um, in the movie, especially when it's adapted, is a very notable moment. I thought it was interesting that they took that line, it's an honor, and stuck it into the trailer when Ghostface is talking to Sydney on the phone. Hello, Sydney. It's an honor. It's sad to see David Arquette go, but let's be honest, Dewey could not have survived another ghost face attack. We, we, we've gone beyond the pale as far as pushing it at this point. From here, we go to the party scene, which is at Stu Mocker's old house. And there's some really good tension-filled scenes here, like when Chad is trying to find Liv with the phone tracker. I, I have to go back and watch it again, but I'm pretty sure that the sound effect used on the phone was cribbed or recreated from aliens when they're using the motion tracker to track the alien. Eight meters. Seven. This is also where we get the first killer reveal as Amber shoots Liv in the head. And it's also where we get one of my favorite interactions, maybe my favorite in the movie. Amber comes out on the porch as Gail and Sydney approach. They've tracked everybody to the house. And Amber's saying, oh, please, please help me. And they just basically go like, it's a trap, right? Yeah. The idea that they've been through so much and they don't trust any of these kids, especially now that they're adults. And it also shows the fact that Sydney is over it. I mean, this is a this is something that in the first film, Stu tried to kind of pull on her. The idea of, you know, oh God, things are terrible. Let me in. Help me. Help me. He and Randy arguing back and forth. And Sydney's over it. She just wants to take care of business. Ghostface calls Sydney. There's a little bit more meta commentary as Sydney says, oh, this is the most derivative one of all. Same house. I love when she's walking through with the gun and just shooting through the doorways she, when she hangs up on Ghostface as he's going through his spiel and basically says like I'm bored uh, and then we get our second killer reveal which is Richie and again Jack Quaid delivers the line really well when he says uh, it's a bummer it's me because I think he's really talking to the audience you're in a really tough spot here when you're writing a screen movie because it has to be a surprising character but it can't be a character that's so surprising that it doesn't make sense but it also can't be a character that's so obvious that you guessed it uh, ahead of time. The other thing being, and the thing that I like about these movies, is that you also don't know why these characters are doing it. So maybe you guessed that it was Richie, or maybe you guessed that it was Amber, but you didn't know why they were doing it. And I like that they come up with inventive reasons as to why they're going on a killing spree. Now, their motivation is someone has to save the franchise. And I've seen a lot of controversy about this. 
uh, a lot of people saying that the idea of being motivated by being a fan of the Stab series, and I will admit that some of the dialogue is, is a little on the nose uh, when Richie says, uh, how can fandom be toxic? It's about love. Don't they understand these movies are important to people? Yes, this does explain the thesis of the film in a pretty straightforward way. Maybe you could have massaged that scene a little bit more. However, as somebody who's been in the online movie arena for about a decade, it'll be a decade pretty much this year, I can say that it really wasn't that much of a stretch for me to see how people could take their love of something this far. Now, of course, it's exaggerated because I don't think there's a whole lot of serial killers that are out there uh, because they didn't like the last Halloween movie. But at the same time, I have seen the extremes to which people will go to what they think is protect the franchises that they love, and they can be some pretty scary extremes. So from my perspective, I didn't really think this was too much of a stretch. After an extended showdown, Amber is dispatched in a way that I also referenced in my original review and I couldn't really go into either the actor or the method because that would have been a huge spoiler for the ending, but we have the actor Mikey Madison who was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as one of the Charles Manson killers who comes into the house at the end as they rewrite history and she is thought to be dead. She springs up and comes in screaming and then Leo DiCaprio blasts her with a flamethrower. Here the events happen in the inverse order, but she's lit on fire and is again flaming and then comes out screaming and is killed it's so similar that I was watching this and I it it almost took me out of the movie because in my brain I was thinking like okay one of two things happened either this is the most coincidental thing in the world and they wrote this script uh, to have this death and they just happened to cast Mikey Madison in this part and she is in like the most niche typecasting corner of all time or they cast Mikey Madison and they said okay we want to dispatch this killer we want to give a meta wink to a movie outside of this franchise so we're going to basically kill her off in this movie the exact same same way that she was killed off in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know the answer to that right now. I'm looking forward to things like a commentary track, hopefully on this movie or more interviews uh, in the coming weeks to see which one that it was. But I thought it was very amusing that she basically uh, died in the exact same way in two very different movies. Ghost Dad Billy instructs Sam to brutally kill Richie. We see it is like father, like daughter. She holds the knife the same way as Billy. She wipes the blade. Uh, So we have a little bit of resolution, at least for this movie, on Sam's lineage and Billy's influence. And again, a lot of people saying like, oh, there's interesting ways to go with the sequel. You know, I guess if you're into that. And then we have a great closing line from Gail where she says, well, I know what I'm going to write about now. And Sydney says, what? And she says, not this. Those efforts can die in anonymity. Again, some character growth from Gail. She's done exploiting these tragedies. She doesn't want anybody to become famous from this and inspire movies because she knows that that will then inspire killers and this will never truly end for her. And then this scream ends like the original scream, which is a wide shot as a reporter does a report from the front porch of the house. It looks looked, however, like this house was maybe built on a soundstage and the background was digital, which was a little disappointing. If it was the real background, it looked digital, but that was such beautiful scenery in that first movie. This looked a little fakey to me, especially because it was such a wide shot to end the movie. Um, but there is, again, that sort of, and why I don't think that you need to keep going with this franchise, a very symmetrical thing, like George Lucas' poetry, it rhymes. Uh, th- this movie begins and ends the same way as the original Scream, and I would be very happy if the franchise ended there. So those are my spoiler thoughts on Scream. I know they were quite extensive, but there was a lot that I really liked about that movie. Before we go, the last thing I wanted to talk about is the Sundance Film Festival, which is once again all virtual. It was a last-minute change, but for the second year in a row... 
There are only virtual screenings happening, none in person, but I am actually going to be covering it this year for the first time. It's my first time ever covering a film festival, and I'm really excited about this. I've always wanted to cover a film festival. Hopefully in the future, I'll actually get to go to one. Even though I'm sure that this was a big disappointment for Sundance that they had to go all virtual, it does make these films a lot more accessible for people that want to cover it from home, which is what I'm doing. I bought tickets to about 20 movies, I think, over the next five days or six days, and and I will be doing a big wrap-up video afterwards to talk about some of my favorites and maybe some that I didn't like so much. But I wanted to look at a few movies that I'm definitely going to cover that feature a few of the bigger names, might be some of the buzzier movies, though I'm also keeping track of things like movies that come out in the Midnight series. That's where movies like Hereditary came from. There is one, however, that I won't be able to talk to you about, and that is a movie that's actually getting the most advanced buzz. That doesn't always mean it's the best one coming out of the festival, but that's a movie called Cha-Cha Real Smooth. It's the only big release I wasn't able to get tickets to. It stars Cooper Rafe. He directs, writes, and stars alongside Dakota Johnson, playing a bar mitzvah DJ who pursues a relationship with a single mother. It's got the kind of buzz potential that a movie like Coda had last year. It came out as a crowd favorite. It's now an awards show favorite. So I will be looking to see that as soon as I can, but uh, don't be surprised if you hear about this is a big distribution venue. Movies are sold for a lot of money. Palm Springs sold at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, and then later was a big hit on Hulu. Don't be surprised if this movie pans out to be as good as the buzz has it to hear about a big number coming in and this movie selling to Hulu or Searchlight or whoever for quite a lot of money. There are two movies that I've actually already seen because the the festival began last night. One of them is a documentary called The Princess, which is about Princess Diana, which, yes, I know there's been so much Princess Diana stuff recently. However, this documentary is comprised entirely of archival footage that was compiled at the time that it aired. So you see basically how the media covered Princess Diana, how the public reacted to her in real time from the time that she got together with Prince Charles to the time of her death. I thought it was really fascinating. I loved this documentary. And then there was a movie that I can't wait to talk about with people and luckily this is one of the few movies that in Sundance uh, that has actually gotten distribution already it's going to be out on Hulu in March I think the first weekend in March and that is a movie called Fresh which is directed by Mimi Cave it's written by Lauren Kahn Adam McKay produced the film it stars Sebastian Stan and Daisy Edgar Jones who are both great in this movie I'll talk more about it in my wrap up but I will say that I'm going to have a video in the chamber ready to go in March when this hits Hulu because there are going to be so many people that want to talk about this film. I want to talk about this film. I, I don't want anyone else to know anything about this film because I went in completely blind. It is one of the most effed up things I have ever seen in my life, and yet I loved it. And I don't always react to really screwed up stuff like that. I'll talk about it later more, but put this on your radar, especially because we know when we're going to be able to see this movie, which is in just over a month on Hulu. A few more that I'm keeping my eye on, there's one called After Yang, which is from South Korean director and film essayist Koganada. He previously directed Columbus, starring John Cho. This movie stars Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith, who was the co-star of Queen and Slim. She played Queen. It centers around a family trying to save the life of their robotic house assistant slash family member. The movie debuted at Cannes last summer. It uh, screened in the Uncertain Regards section, which is basically sort of the alternative section. So I'm looking forward to that one. There's a movie called Call Jane, which is the directorial debut of writer Phyllis Nagy, who was Oscar-nominated for her screenplay for Carol back in 2015. It boasts a cast including Kate Mara, Elizabeth Banks, and Sigourney Weaver. It takes place in the 1960s and is about the Jane Collective, a Chicago group that helped women get safe abortions when the procedure was largely illegal in the United States. 
a movie that came in with a lot of buzz that I did not get to see tonight, but that I will see this week is the directorial and writing debut of Jesse Eisenberg. And from what I saw, I got a pretty mixed reaction, but I'm keeping my mind open. It's a movie called When You Finish Saving the World. Julian Moore both produced and stars in the movie as the mother of a teenage boy who's played by Finn Wolfhard. This is a coming-of-age film. Emma Stone uh, also produced this film. It's one of the buzzier names this year. But again, uh, we talk about the buzz going in. The buzz isn't as strong coming out of this first screening, at least not from some of the initial responses that I saw. Uh, Perhaps I'll react more strongly to it. You'll get my opinion on that in my wrap-up video. There's also a movie I can't wait to see called Duel. It's from Riley Stearns, who had an underground hit with The Art of Self-Defense. It stars Karen Gillan as a woman who has herself cloned and then changes her mind and has to basically face off against herself in a fight for survival. The movie co-stars Aaron Paul, and this is a great concept that I just think could be interesting. Maybe the movie won't pan out, but I like Karen Gillan. I like Aaron Paul, uh, so this is one I'm going to be keeping an eye on. There's a movie called 892. John Boyega plays a veteran who faces difficulty coming back and trying to resume a normal life. Connie Britton co-stars, and then Michael K. Williams in what I believe is his last film role uh, prior to his tragic death last year is also in the film some buzz for John Boyega he replaced Jonathan Majors who had conflicts with his Marvel schedule so we'll see if that was maybe uh, a bit of a conflict with Jonathan Majors that he might regret there's a documentary called we need to talk about Cosby it's another one that already has distribution it's going to be on Showtime uh, basically in about uh, a little over a week shortly after the end of the festival it's from comedian W. Kamau Bell it's going to air as a mini series it's going to show as like a four hour long documentary at the festival so I'll be able to see the whole thing but it's an in-depth look at Bill Cosby at his legacy as a comedian and then obviously his convictions his fall from grace it's a very complicated court case and it's a very complicated case amongst a lot of people who grew up with him as a very influential comedian so that's something that will be basically an afternoon watch for me and then finally there's a movie called Something in the Dirt which is not featuring some of the bigger names but it's the one that I actually kind of asterisk and have the most interest in it's from Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead I admired a film they did back in 2017 called The Endless. They scored a buzzy pandemic hit uh, with Synchronic in 2020. I don't know a whole lot about this film other than that it's about a haunting in an LA apartment building, but I just have a feeling that these two are due for a breakout on the film side, on the television side. They're also directing episodes of Moon Knight on Disney+, Plus, which is already getting some big buzz, but this could be one of those movies, maybe it's a movie like Hereditary, where it comes into this sort of midnight slot and then comes out of the festival with a lot of that buzz something that you see for movies like The Witch or It Comes at Night. And then there are several others, many, many others, documentaries, uh, narrative films that I'm going to be seeing that, uh, you know, probably have lesser named talent, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth seeing. And there's a bunch of films that I'm not going to get a chance to see that you may also hear about. If you want to follow my coverage in real time, you can follow me on Twitter at Merle Dan. I'm going to be tweeting out some thoughts about each movie as I see it. And then next week, once all of the films have been shown and I've been able to watch as many as I can, I will give my full recap with my standouts from the festival. I'm really looking forward to it, and I've really enjoyed this format. Let me know if you like this, combining different reviews, different segments. It's something that I'm trying as I experiment with a lot of things here on the channel in 2022. Thank you so much for watching. If you want to see even more about it, you can check me out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Merle. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, you can also check out my audio podcast channel at the links down in the description below. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time. Bye.